Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that every system of learning and instruction has a fundamental idea lying at the bottom of it. In the case of Jesus' preaching, there is one single topic which controls all of his discourse. Jesus himself told us about the center and the heart of his own mission. In describing his own missionary activity in Galilee, he said, I came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the reason why I was sent. Few verses could describe so beautifully the purpose of Jesus' whole mission. It was the preaching of the kingdom of God that he was involved with. That was what drove his whole activity from dawn till dusk for those three and a half years before he was cruelly taken by the religious authorities and nailed to a cross. Jesus was a great preacher of the kingdom. All the apostles preached the kingdom. And Jesus gave the marching orders to the church in Matthew 28 that they were to relay to the people of all the nations that same kingdom gospel. No wonder then that in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, This gospel about the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations before the end comes. That then is the task of the church. From the departure of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, during the period of the apostolic ministry in the New Testament, and thereafter, the church has one task, and that's to announce the kingdom of God and to prepare people for entrance into that kingdom when it comes to be established on the earth. We've been saying that the kingdom of God must be defined if we're to make any sense of Jesus and his teaching at all. It must be defined in terms of its own first century Jewish environment. That's why we've been pointing to Daniel chapter 2, verses 35 and 44. There we find a vision given to Nebuchadnezzar of the course of world history in the form of four beast kingdoms noted for their savagery and their non-humane characteristics. But following the demise of those four kingdoms, there will arise on the earth, so this vision says, the kingdom of God. The God of heaven, we read in Daniel 2.44, will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed but it will crush these previously existing Gentile kingdoms. That's the kingdom of God as every Jew of a religious persuasion would have understood the term as Jesus brought it to him. Jesus came into Galilee urging his audiences to take note of the fact that the kingdom of God was on the horizon and that they should repent and direct their lives to the urgent business of preparing to gain a place in that kingdom. Jesus, you know, said that the way to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is narrow. Not many find it. There are too many competing activities and interests which distract people from the concentration that is necessary on the kingdom of God if we want to enter it when it's established by Jesus at his coming. Jesus lays before us the kingdom of God as the supreme goal of human life. It's the one destiny that we cannot afford to miss out on. The alternative is to be burned up as chaff. The glory of the kingdom grants us immortality and a co-regency with Jesus in that thousand-year kingdom initially, the first stage of the kingdom of God, and then on into all the ages of the ages following. 
And so the kingdom of God is of paramount importance to every human being who steps this earth. We all come under judgment in the future. Those who have prepared to enter the kingdom of God will be welcomed in it. That's the story of the New Testament. Indeed, that's the story of the whole of our Bible. If you find Bible reading difficult or tedious or complicated, try recognizing the fact that the kingdom of God is the underlying story, the thread which runs from one end of the Bible to the other. There's a drama unfolding here on this earth. It's a drama in which the opposition, the anti-Christian forces, oppose the message of the kingdom at every point. In Luke 8.12, Jesus said that the devil is bent on one plan, and that's to destroy and obstruct and to confuse the message about the kingdom. Jesus there said in Luke 8, verse 12, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom, the gospel of God or the word of God, defined in Matthew 13:19 as the gospel about the kingdom, when anyone hears that message of the kingdom, the devil is there, Jesus said, to snatch away that message of the kingdom from your heart so that you may not believe it and be saved. Let me summarize the basic biblical story for you as clearly as I can. In Genesis 12, God began a new thing by appealing to a single family, the family of Abraham, and calling Abraham out of his own native country in Ur of the Chaldees to a land which God would show him. Now, God promised Abraham that land in perpetuity by a number of different interventions in the life of Abraham, God covenanted to him on oath that the land in which he was dwelling would one day belong to him forever. Now, that covenant of the land in perpetuity was confirmed to the children of Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob and to the people of Israel. It's a colossal mistake to think that those covenants made with Abraham are irrelevant to the Christian. They are, in fact, the very heart of the Christian gospel. You see, in addition to the land, which was promised to Abraham forever, and which he has never yet inherited, in addition to that land, there was also made a promise of a distinguished seed or descendant. That descendant, as many know, was the Messiah. We read that plainly stated in Galatians 3 and verse 16. The seed in the singular promised to Abraham was indeed the Christ. Now that land needed a landowner, and so it made sense that if the land was to be promised to Abraham, then somebody to own the land was required also. The ultimate owner of that land is Jesus Christ himself. Many have not noticed that in Galatians 3.19, the promised inheritance made to Abraham was made also to the seed of Abraham. And to define that seed of Abraham, we go to Galatians 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, Paul there said, if you're a Christian, in other words, then you are reckoned as Abraham's seed, and you become an heir according to the promise, that's to say the promise made to Abraham. And if we want to define that promise made to Abraham, we have a very clear statement of it in Romans 4:13. The promise made to Abraham that he would be heir of the world. The biblical story then is founded on a very simple idea. God has promised to give the land to Abraham, to Christ and the Christians, the faithful of all the ages. On that plan, the whole Bible is founded. 
The scheme itself is exceptionally simple. It revolves around the promise of the earth, which Jesus, of course, confirmed in Matthew 5, verse 5. In that famous text, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, because they are going to inherit the land. That, of course, recalls the blessing made to Abraham. You see, the scheme is essentially very simple. If one becomes an heir of the land, the land promise made to Abraham, one becomes then an heir of the entire earth or world. The idea is this. The kingdom of God will be headquartered in the land of Israel, but it will extend its influence across the globe. The whole biblical story looks forward to that great time of restoration when peace will be re-established on the earth. That was God's plan from the beginning, and he worked it out through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the faithful in Israel, culminating in Jesus Christ himself, who is the recipient of the great land promise along with Abraham. As a Christian, you take part in that same land promise made to Abraham. Now, the difficult thing is that in traditional Christianity, that land promise has been replaced with vague promises of heaven. This distraction occurred when Greek church fathers failed to recognize the very Hebrew-orientated promises made to Abraham and confirmed by Jesus. The Bible, you see, is interested in the future of this earth. Church fathers, who were more or less influenced by Greek philosophy, had little interest in the future of the world or the earth. They knew of immortal souls, and they then began to believe that an immortal soul, a part of man which separates from his body at death, according to their Greek non-biblical theology, that that immortal soul would have to reside somewhere far removed from this planet. Now, that element in the story was quite foreign to the Bible. The Bible looked forward to the resurrection of the faithful from death into the life of the kingdom of God on this earth. Jesus promised his followers always the inheritance of the earth, the inheritance of the kingdom. That was simply the same inheritance promised to Abraham and extended now not only to the people who were lineal descendants of Israel, but also to the Gentiles who came to accept this faith of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. That faith is centered on the kingdom promise, the promise made to Abraham. That's why then Paul in Galatians 3 verse 8 can correctly state that the gospel, the gospel about the kingdom, was indeed preached beforehand to Abraham. Now, this story of the unfolding plan, God's unfolding drama to reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth, unites the various parts of the Bible in a coherent whole. The story begins with the call of Abraham, the promise to Abraham that he would have the land forever, the promise that he would have a distinguished descendant, the Messiah, and that that Messiah would gather around him those who believed in his agenda, in his kingship, in his future rule of the world. And Jesus then, in his great generosity, offers to share that kingdom with all of us who believe and are baptized, just as we find early Christians believing in Acts 8 and verse 12. Now, that simple story of the gift of land to Abraham to be extended to Christ as the lawful seed and to the Christians became confused when Bible readers began to imagine that heaven was the objective of the Christian faith rather than the inheritance of the earth, as Jesus had promised in Matthew 5, verse 5. 
The hope of the early church, says one scholar, centered on the resurrection in the future and also, of course, in the kingdom of God to be established after that resurrection. Now, the scholar of the history of Christianity goes on to point out that in traditional Christian teaching, however, the original biblical concepts have been replaced by ideas from Gnostic or pagan dualism, from Greek philosophy, in other words. The New Testament idea of the resurrection, which affects the whole man, has had to give way to the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. The last day of which Jesus spoke also loses its significance, for souls, under the traditional teaching, have already received all that's decisively important for them long before that last day. There's a huge difference, this scholar goes on to say, between the original biblical teaching on the future and what has come down to us by way of traditional teaching. That difference lies simply in the fact that Jesus always promised his followers a place in the kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus knew nothing at all about souls disappearing to heaven at death. That's a distraction, and that has confused the biblical prospect of Christians ruling and reigning with Christ on the earth when he returns. Our time is running out for today. We ask that you request from us our free book on the kingdom of God. You may like to have a tape of the program you've been listening to. We invite you to check our findings carefully in your own Bible study at home. Remember that Jesus was a Jew who must be studied in his own first century Palestinian Jewish environment. Join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' famous topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.